Hey podcast, it's me again. I'm back for two days in a row. Uh, James here, live on the Toucan Echo podcast, except it's not live for you, it's live for me as I'm talking, because um, it's literally me ranting into my phone. But for you, hopefully this evergreen, interesting debate will can be listened to at any time <laughs> in the future. Um, I'm talking to you from coronavirus lockdown on May the 7th, 2020. So things are pretty kind of slow and quiet, so there's a lot of time for reflection. And notably, not a lot of time for gigs and festivals right now. Um, it's a big part of being a musician, being an artist, a big part of the public's lives. You know, the audience <laughs> has to come from somewhere and people um, structure their years around festivals sometimes. You know, the particularly in the UK, there's a really good bunch of uh, festivals in the summer like Glastonbury and Reading they're they're pivotal <laughs> moments in people's lives in the year but all of those have gone right now so I think it's kind of an appropriate time weirdly now we don't have any live gigs to talk a little bit about performing live and I don't I don't even know if I have a solution to it just some things that I don't really understand about musicians playing live at the moment, right? So, on my previous ones I've done about guitar music and recording, I've sort of walked through the history. Um, I suppose live playing, how, how much has the history of live playing changed over time, to give context to what we're saying now? I think I'll start with the premise that I don't think now is wildly different to playing live in most of history, fundamentally. You have a stage, you have amplified or loud-ish instruments. I suppose an orchestra is a group of instruments together that creates a sort of amplified noise because there's so many of them, you're so outnumbered. So you have a stage, you have an audience, hopefully, sometimes, if the gig's going well. And you have this event that happens, usually in the evening. Although Vampire Weekend did a concert in the morning that one of my friends went to, and he said it was really cool. Everyone had coffee instead of beer. It's just a thought. Um, <laughs> sorry, went off track. So, what is it that draws people to live music? Well, linked to the recording side that we talked about before, or I talked about before, it's it used to be the only way you could consume music. In fact, it was so special that it might be the only time you hear that piece of music ever. It might be once-in-a-lifetime event, or at least a very rare event, a very expensive, special moment for you to be able to hear that music. They used to sell, you know, publishing rights and a lot of history, um, historical kind of constructs in the music industry relate to um, selling sheet music originally. They used to used to write the song and then distribute out to people who would then play it. Um, based on a world where there aren't loads of people who can play it. Um, that's still quite a scarce thing. So, live music originally takes that form, and it also, you know, it also takes the form of kind of parlour music being played in smaller settings, not in big auditoriums. Um, it's, it's something that people gather around to have a sing around a campfire, or someone comes in to perform for a king. There's kind of, there's that sort of live music that the, it's almost playing a role of a recording. But the event 
grouping together is I'm, I'm going to put to one side I'm going to say there's some portion of the history of live music that is more acting the role as a recording and it's slightly replaced by a recording a, a kind of intimate performance but we still have the event and that must have survived because of the gathering of people in one place to give a different context and experience to the music so you know now more than ever in um recent times we've had explosion of big live events of big touring bands and this um this tracks back to the 60s and 70s so not to get ahead of myself like we invented recording as i said last time um kind of blossoms in the 60s 70s also what what lags behind at that time is live sound so um i'm going to use a rarely used example um of the beatles they become so popular so quickly that the size of their audience and the demand that obviously they want to cash in on through selling tickets as they don't know how long it's going to last that is ahead of the technology at the time they had to have amplifiers made that were bigger than others in existence or commonly in existence maybe there was louder they had to have super loud amps made because these concerts were so big um, and for those of you who don't know too much about live sound, these days you have a PA. Um, you'll have, probably have heard of a PA system, which um, you put all your instruments through. So you put your microphones through. Depending on the size of the room, you may need to put everything from the drums, bass, guitar. So if you're at a stadium, you, you essentially mic up everything on the stage. You get an input from all the different instruments, and then you mix them together through these big... PA systems that then amplifies the sound so the audience can hear it from um, all around the arena. Um, in the 60s, they didn't really have that. They Guitar amplifiers were originally designed to fill the room with sound, so gigs are usually held in smaller venues in little clubs. There weren't big stadium rock bands, so a big amplifier on stage is loud enough for the audience to hear it because you're just in the same small room. Um, so that's <laughs> kind of how they first approached them playing share stadium the beatles um they make them massive big as possible amps um obviously this didn't account for the fact that the audience screamed their faces off for half an hour and <laughs> deafened everyone in fact at share stadium so primitive is the technology that they put the vocals through the tannoy so it's like a baseball stadium i think um and they put the vocals through yeah the the tannoy that would make the you know the sort of tinny like announcer sound um which if you think about these standards how bad that would sound <laughs> how bad the experience of the music would be for the crowd um so it begs the question hmm those people obviously weren't going to hear anything um it's a, you know probably some interesting psychological cultural thing there but let's keep let's stick on live music live performance um so we then progressed through, and in the 70s, 80s, they kind of sort out this problem, and they managed to get stadium sound, or sound for big venues better. So then you have the emergence of stadium rock bands. Um, there's an interesting debate between uh, Mick Jagger and Paul McCartney recently on who was better, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, not against each other, against various interviewers who asked them the same question. Um, and Mick Jagger made a good point that um, the, the Stones have been around for way, way longer doing stadium tours. So in many ways, they're a different kind of band. The, the Beatles were produced fabulous music, but over a very short contained period of time, 
and while they did do long tours, they didn't do sustained um, stadium tours in the same way like the Rolling Stones did. So there's an interesting dynamic there, um, which kind of makes them hard to judge against each other, to be honest. But it means that the Stones and um, think of some other bands. Um, think of other ones who played like really big venues. Queen. These are the ones that the the live sound catches up. The technology to, um, you know, like I mentioned, PA system, the and the technology to decide. Oh well, what we'll do is we'll mic up guitar amplifiers and then we'll put it with the drums and with the vocals all through these um, kind of nice systems um, that will get the sound out in the stadium and it'll sound good rather than everyone having to listen to like a box on the stage. It's just not possible like Wembley Stadium. So that's the evolution of the technology of live sound. We haven't moved on dramatically since then. I suppose the biggest difference would be um, kind of pyrotechnics and colour displays and stages is what's come since then. Now we've seen um, perhaps because we're moving towards electronic music and you're not as dependent on a band being on stage um, and you have way more flexibility on how you decide to make the sound, uh, it means that a lot of pop artists who aren't from the kind of band way of doing things um, use dancers and um, kind of video and lights and the shape of the stage to kind of convey a story. It's a way more of a big splash event spectacle um you know but but that is a a certain you know that's a certain thing that goes on in the live music industry i don't think it's necessarily a relevant example for independent music or kind of what i'm talking about here so where am i going with this i've talked about we you know live music's been around for ages it's not fundamentally changed but one of the big changes is that we've enabled big stadium tours through development of technology but let's focus on small small events like independent bands kind of what uh, Tucan Echo are trying to be we're not going to be a stadium band so my the reason I started talking about this was what is the purpose of live performance and a particular gripe that I want to get into is why do we aim to always play the same set list or a very structured show so, actually, it does tie into the technology. There was probably a reason I explained all that. What has come with that advent of um, technology and computers and stuff is, I think, more structured live shows. So, ones I've seen... So, I, I went to see the 1975 before all this all happened, um, which is very interesting because it was an example of a guitar band, but using a very... Um, they They tied what the band was playing in very much to the visuals and the lights and... Um, the whole show had to be very coordinated and by extension um, very pre sort of pre-arranged, set listed they need to know what they're playing when to quite a high degree of accuracy before they go on stage um, it cuts out I suppose those kind of shows where you're trying to put on this larger than life spectacle in order to be larger than life they have to pre-arrange, <laughs> they have to make arrangements and coordinate a bigger group of people which means more structure so essentially what i'm saying is why do we always why do we aim for a perfect set list or aim for a 
when when musicians are prepping for gigs, I, I think the vast majority of people will be trying to work out exactly what songs they're going to play, exactly what order, um, and seek to play them perfectly. So there's often the thing said of if a band is really good, they sound just like the record. And there's kind of a nice follow-on from my thoughts on recording from last time, that why do we want to sound just like the record? I suppose that used to be an amazing thing when records were new. And maybe it's an amazing thing now because recording's so flexible that um, you can make yourself sound good in the studio, but sounding live is the really impressive thing. Um, whereas in the past, a band would exist live before it was recorded, so you, could, you couldn't even be recorded if you weren't reasonably good live. So it's an interesting how those things have flipped. Um, but I want to know where it's from that even smaller bands who are playing little clubs, playing small gigs, feel the need to obey a rigid set list. Um, in most of the bands I played into, in, I played in, we followed this same thing, and there is a, a basic logic to it that you've um, you've got a certain number of people in the band or in the whole system if you've got like a touring crew and all of them in order for them to do their particular job they need to know what the others are going to do because um, the inherent nature of a band is you have to um, <laughs> cooperate with other people in a musical sense um, so hello sorry just got um, interrupted there but I'm back um, so yeah, in a whole nature of a band is that you need to cooperate with other people. The songs don't happen unless you all <laughs> uh, agree that it's in the same key and that you're going to play the verse at the same time before the chorus, etc. Um, so there is... I can see why it, it arises out of that. But what... I suppose I first found it a bit of a drag playing in bands myself because you change venue and you change audience but the gigging experience becomes a bit monotonous if you've if you worked on the premise that there is a perfect set list and you are trying to play your song in a per, in a perfectly rec, perfectly replicable way so i think this arises from before recording because you are that's the first, that's skipping way back back to if you're watching an orchestra in the 1500s or whatever and if you are the, if that's the one time you get to see that piece of music in your whole life you want to see it perfect you want an amazing rendition that communicates what the composer was um, trying to do in this written down format that's communicated to you through the orchestra so I can see why you want that to be perfect, perfectly written, and I can see why an orchestra has to be organised for so many people. Um, and there's less room for individual flair and stuff like that. So I don't think my argument is really that big groups should all just kind of do what they want. But I can see why that needs to be perfect. However, fast forward to where we are now. We have perfectly replicatable music in the form of recordings, um, more so than ever because we can get them digitally with minimal effort and perfect sounding. They they sound 
give or take exactly like they did when they were recorded, which is a pretty amazing thing. Um, we're hearing what the artist heard. Uh, let's not get into streaming quality and stuff like that. But um, So why, why do we go to a gig to hear something that we could hear on a record? There's obviously the people aspect. There's, I think, a big driver for a lot of people is that they're going because other people are there and it's almost a, meet a meeting and a, unite a, a unity of people around a common interest. Um, and they, I think there's a nostalgic or personal element of familiarity that they want to hear the song that they've sat in their room playing, but like the actual people are there and all these other people like me are there at the same time. And that's the kind of special moment. There's a lot, there seems to be more emphasis among festival crowds and whatever of we want a song we can all sing along to. And again, that's, you need to play a song in the way that people know and, um, in order to get that peak experience, I suppose. That's why they set list certain songs for the end and whatever. So um, I think I keep floating between like clubs and stadiums and mixing up my points a little bit here, but hopefully you're following. So we still and we still have that same thing. This, this gathering of people is what drives people to live music because they don't need to go to hear the music anymore. But from my perspective as a musician, the pursuit of trying to play our songs just like we recorded them became quite boring quite quickly I felt a bit I started to feel a bit like a performing monkey or like a robot <laughs> and that we'd lost the humanity of the songs and actually I what I really enjoyed was uh, either recording them because you're kind of making them come to life for the first time um, and there's you're you're working out what works and there's chance to layer stuff and it felt like there was more um, variety and experimentation in that world um, I loved doing practice and and whatever but what really wore me down is practicing the same set list again and again and again and not pushing pushing onto like new sounds and new pastures all the time so if you had a string of gigs booked and the ethos in your band is um, we've got our set list, and we're going to play. We're going to play that to every crowd. Particularly if you're a starting out band, and you've got a lot of the same friends going to the same gigs, it just it gets tiring quickly. Um, it maybe even consider, oh, how much do I even like doing this? Because I, even though I'm not sick of it at this um, particular moment. Um, I'm, I'm not, I, you know, I could certainly do way more gigs than I do at the moment and still be happy, but I can see looking forward down the road that if, if I've achieved all I wanted to in terms of, uh, done tours and played big stadiums or not big stadiums, but played big enough venues that I deemed were good enough, I can see how eventually it would, it might get a bit monotonous if you couldn't push the boundaries a little bit or at least that element of your career would get a bit monotonous you I could see how you might go oh, I can't wait to the next album so I can have to play these songs night after night after night and not just play the same songs play the same songs in the same way as if you were a human jukebox so I kind of already suspected this in the back of my mind and then I discovered the white stripes a lot of people <laughs> knew about them before me because I discovered them quite recently and obviously I'd heard of them before um, when they were big in, like, well, 
for me it would have been 2005 onwards that they would have kind of come to my attention um i would have been a bit young before that but um i do remember seeing them on tv and thinking god these guys are rubbish <laughs> and uh obviously the red and white is very striking so they're quite memorable to, to see but um i'd never seen anything so trashy on a on a festival um i think maybe when you're younger you're into slightly more refined um perfect sounding music but anyway moving forward i've recently got into them and the way i got into them is that i watched some of their um live shows on youtube so i watched a couple of festivals that they did um, and then dug a bit deeper and at first i had the same sort of reaction like this is quite uh quite trashy um <laughs> like it's quite yeah the the timing's a bit off in places um you know they it's, it's it feels like a garage band in a stadium setting was my first instinct and oh look he's like fluff that guitar note and stuff um so it's interesting in that sense i was like but look at them at reading festival don't don't see the link here i've i've seen you know, young uh starting out bands who kind of have this level of <laughs> professionalism but then i i'm I don't mean all those things, by the way. They were just my first instinct. So I, wa- I dug into it more deeply and I watched more and quickly became really captivated by their live show. It, there's something about it that when I when the video then went on to a, a different band, particularly more modern bands who'd moved, who'd integrated uh, computers and synths and whatever, um, it had this life about it this humanity and energy and it's quite loud aggressive music at times which is one aspect but there was something that felt like they were giving it absolutely their all like they were putting their lives on the line i know that sounds ridiculous but it looked like they were putting everything out there um the emotion the intensity the the way they looked at each other the um it it just felt like it was there was something proper happening in front of you. It kind of heightened your sense of urgency and your need your kind of captivation with watching them. Um and then I found out that they don't use a set list. So I don't I researched a bit more on the internet and um I think I'll do a different podcast on how much I love Jack White because he's really one of my um inspirations at the moment. But um the thing I'm covering today is that they don't use a set list, so they will play something different each show depending on what they feel works for that crowd that made so much sense to me i was like yeah why does everyone not do that (laughs) why is that not better for the musicians and for the crowd that they're not like the musicians aren't haven't just become these kind of cogs these like like clocking in for their nine to five but not a nine to five they're clocking in to play the same songs as they did in this other place. Like, no wonder touring bands say that all these places just merge into one and it just becomes quite monotonous. It wasn't monotonous for the White Stripes. This was like... The, it's almost as if they had no laurels to rest on when they were going out on stage at a Reading Festival. They weren't going, we, we know we've played this same set fine the last 20 times, so we just kind of turn the wheel again. You know, you'll do that bit at that point and you'll jump at, after that song and... Um, it will be prearranged. That's gone down well last time, so let's take our um, 
perfectly curated thing and shop it out. Like, to me, that's what recording's for. That's what watching a movie's for. I want to watch the same movie each time. But why I want a musician who's playing live in that one moment, which is my only moment to see them, like, I want that moment to be as unique and real and human as possible. And I don't think there's anything more human than trying to arrange your songs and arrange your set to the people in front of you, not to um, some, not based on some mood that you had sat in a coffee shop before the start of the tour. Um, now, granted, it is not easy to do this in a bigger band because the way the White Stripes communicate their set changes is they would just like look at each other and do some sort of signal or shout. Um, it's one of the reasons a two-piece band is way easier to do this than it is in a bigger band, unless you're um, a jam band and you've got a really good connection of who's kind of leading into the next song. And um, you know, it's it's hard to do it, particularly if there's like a power struggle in the band between different singers and and stuff. It's really difficult to do this because someone's gonna have to pick the song and like lead everyone in that direction. Everyone's gonna have to willingly follow kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> so two piece bands easier because you've got kind of one person in charge of rhythm and the other person in charge of the melodic stuff. So, um, you know, you, it's the, the duties are, there's less chance for rivalry over what song we're going to do next. Um, or who's going to sing what, whatever. Um, and, and maybe it's just the personalities as well. But anyway, for Jack and Meg, it worked. Um, and even now, even though I'm, though I'm not watching them live, I'm watching an old recording that um, they are effectively playing the same set every time I watch their Reading Festival set over and over again. Um, it's just real. It's just human. And what I want from a live show. Um, one, It's not really a story I've told that much, but one of the inspirations I had behind forming Tukaneko behind, not that I really, I say forming, I, I had the idea for the name in my mind before anything else, and it was a real, like, bolt of lightning in a way. Um, I was on holiday, um, sort of travelling in uh, Malaysia, in the Malaysian jungle, um, and I was there with my friend, and we were kind of walking along, and this, uh, I mean, the story of the name is a bit random. There, there was a weird-looking bird that landed near us, and um, I asked, I asked my friend, oh, what's that? And he said, oh, it looks like a dirty toucan. Um, and I was like, that sounds cool. I couldn't call my band Dirty Toucan, but I quite like it, and that's where Toucan Echo eventually came from, from throwing it around. Um, but coming up with that, I'm really going off piece here, but let's carry on. I will circle back. Um, <clears throat> so um, from that, from having that name, um, having not been in a band at that point, it suddenly made me go, oh, there is an alternative to just me putting music out under James um, or James Burge or whatever, some solo career that I didn't really fancy the idea of. It was more of a blocker. It was like, oh, that's way too um, linked to like who I am now and who I am in every situation. That That's properly putting my name on it. And I didn't feel comfortable with that because I kind of wanted it to be an, be an alter ego. I, think, I felt that I would actually free to make more and better music if... I had a name I could put it under and go um, detach myself from it a little bit. Otherwise, I don't know if I'd ever finish a song if it was just released under me and I had to take sort of cheesy photos of me sitting in front of graffitied walls. I just didn't want to do that. I'd always played in bands. So to have a, a band 
it feels like you're more because a band is literally uniting people around a certain name, a certain concept, saying even though we're four or five different people, we all want to do this. We're all contributing into this one team. Um, I almost wanted to create an own team for myself, even if I was the only person on it, um, just to be able to separate that from um, your personal, you know, um, your own life, so you can keep a, a separation between. Anyway, I digress. Um, so, um, <laughs> how did I end up going from live performance through to a story about Toucan Echo, through to how we got to the name, through to why I did a name? We've gone many steps too far, but let's go back. So, I came up with the name, and that generated more ideas. Here we go, we're circling back, we're circling back. So, <clears throat> one of the ideas that generated was a memory of when I was, <laughs> again, travelling. Guys, travelling's inspirational. Um, but I was interrailing when I was about 18 or 19. Um, and we were in Belgium, um, and we were on the way back from a pretty crappy club night. We'd done that. We just wandered out trying to find a club, and um, what we found was just a weird... Just, just It was just really strange um, and empty, so we kind of came back a bit dejected. But we walked past some live music, um, and half our group, which was two of us, wanted to go in and see it, uh, and half kind of wanted to go to sleep. <laughs> so we kind of split off, two went back, and two of us went in. And what well, it was this um, band playing West African music. Um, I think they're all still Belgish, Belgium-ish. I don't know what the word is. Um, but they were playing this super groovy, upbeat, interesting West African music. Um, <clears throat> we didn't know any of the songs, obviously. Um, me and my friend were the only white people in there. So we stuck out quite a lot, but they they embraced us and we were right in the right in the thick of it, kind of dancing. Um, and we stayed till the end. It was, um, for me, a, like a live show I'd never seen. It was just a small room. Um, it was nothing sort of special in terms of music. I hadn't heard the music before or anything like that. But the songs were... They were a jam band, um, essentially. The, the, they took the songs into these different places. There was extended um, instrumentals and solos and... Um, Actually, a lot of the music was instrumental with kind of the vocals just chipping in, which is another thing that I've adopted. But um, I just remember it being a really out-of-body experience. Don't worry, I wasn't on anything or anything like that. But I remember it being really impactful. Um, I felt really detached from, like, um, where we'd been before in quite a bad, you know, just like a meh mood. Um, and part of it was just... This, it was happening in front of you. You could see these people on the stage. They were playing and they were genuinely playing. Like they were enjoying it. They were connected to this music because they had to be because they didn't kind of know what was coming next. And um, they were playing these long extended songs and everyone was just into this, um, into this kind of moment and this groove. And um, when I came up with the name to Kaneko and the, the, the name almost inspired the, <clears throat> idea of what the music might be like the the name came first weirdly enough but it was like hey this is maybe something a bit more adventurous or a bit more exotic that, that can absorb more influences and is a bit more free than stuff I've done before in in other bands um you know I've loved the other bands but this was like oh well if I want to play you know do a longer extended jam or if I want to take some of those influences this I could do this I mean this is a thing I've made up, I can do anything with it. Um, and that was super liberating. So when it came to 
um, Harry, you know, me and Harry kind of coming together as Tukaneko later on. Um, it's it's funny because we've always played as a, um, whenever we played together, the the jamming themes come quite naturally because we've done it as part of writing songs and messing around from a young age. Like we have just jammed. It's been quite a natural thing to um, explore. Um, not go in with a certain song. Um, I'll play something on guitar, he'll play something on drums and we'll kind of follow each other um, and when we started when we'd written some songs for Toucan Echo and came in we almost did it in the studio before we actually came in to then practice them in a live setting um, and very quickly um, we used to jam them out um, and me thinking about this band that I'd gone to see and Harry was actually on my interrail trip but he didn't go and see the band and I think he regrets it to this day <laughs> but I won't go too much into that but um <laughs> uh we were like oh yeah we really like the the jamming and the evolving you know i don't it, it makes me play better because like, i i'm playing to like the edge of my ability each time because we're exploring a new area and i have to <laughs> work out how i'm gonna solo for a few minutes and all of that and, and actually that became really exciting because it's almost like a growth thing that's happening rather than a right can we play the song we just recorded as good as we recorded it um can we pre-arrange this exactly so that right, when we're actually playing it live, which should be the pinnacle of what you're doing, we're just going through the motions. Um, so yes, in conclusion, long winding story, but one of the reasons, yeah, we became a jam band is because um, I think it will, it means that when we play live, it's exciting for us and the audience because it's never happened before. Um, we don't know what's going to happen when we start the song. Um <clears throat> we obviously know the kind of area that it's going to be in but that's different to knowing an exact choreographed set um and i don't understand why don't me more people don't do this because the musicians would have a better time because they'd actually be playing music that challenged them not trying to play the same thing that they've played so many times that it doesn't challenge them um and maybe this is why so many bands at festivals look so fucking bored um but we'll <laughs> bitter and resentful I am here um not really but I do think some of them do look really bored um and we have tried as well playing without set list so trying to read the room read the audience read the vibe like how do you feel that day um and add an element of danger I think it is an element of it's kind of tapping into your survival instincts <laughs> that like oh my I need to be alert now because like this could all go wrong in front of everyone um so I think more bands should play without a set list if they can. Um, I don't know how we do light shows or anything like that. Um, and also it's easier for two-piece bands to do this because you can communicate more easily. Um, I wonder if maybe WhatsApp will develop some sort of band on stage app um, where everyone will wear little headsets where they can <laughs> argue on stage <laughs> over what song they're going to play next. <clears throat> anyway, I don't think I've really resolved this point, but... Um, and I think there's more to be said on live music, so maybe I'll pop a little part one on this as well. But my my thoughts are, I, I think we should keep live shows as special, unique, and not play the same thing each time. How can you make each one uncopyable from the night before, from the night before? It's more difficult. It's uh, It puts you at risk of doing one that's bad, but um, and one that's great, and having a bit more of a, you know, inconsistency. But... At the end of the day, I think that's what great artists do. I think that's what people like Bob Dylan do, who he reinterprets the songs. 
That's what why the Grateful Dead has such a keen following who'd go to ten of the same show because they wouldn't be the same show. They'd be different. So, um, yeah, love to know your opinions on this. As usual, email me at james at twocanecho.com or on the socials. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, particularly one that's this long. Um, I'm going to go have a beer now um, because I'm exhausted. All right. (laughs) Lots of love.